evening, everyone. My name is Jim. Uh, we are going to have a look at Isaiah chapter 6 today. I'm just going to check the clicker is working. It is. Now, people, who has seen this series on Netflix? Hands up. Well, not that many. There were, I got a complete blank at 8am. <laughs> that didn't shock me, but I'm, I thought that you guys would have all binged on Inventing Anna. You haven't. Wow, okay. Well, look, uh, it's a great, great show. I've seen the whole thing. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. um, it's based on a true story, a uh, woman by the name of Anna Sorokin. Uh, she was better known as Anna Delvey. She was born in Russia. Her family moved to Germany, and then she made her way to New York. And she posed as a wealthy heiress uh, and had access to the New York social and art scenes between 2013 and 2017. She started as an intern. Uh, and she managed to persuade a whole lot of people who are normally very good with money to give her money on a whole lot of promises and not much checking going on. There's assurances that her very rich father would hand over any money that was required and they handed over bucket loads of money to her. She swindled some quite close friends out of their money. They weren't rich and she, she took quite a lot of their money as well. Uh, eventually, she was exposed as a con artist and a fraud. She was convicted of larceny and attempted grand larceny. She was sentenced to between four and 12 years jail for that. Uh, she spent two years in jail and then she was set to be deported. And uh, she's currently under house arrest in New York awaiting deportation, challenging that in the courts. And as is her style, she's managed to get herself... She's under house arrest in a luxury apartment in New York whilst she fights the deportation order. So there you have uh, Inventing Out of Reckoning. It's a pretty good, pretty good series. You might like to watch it sometime when you have many hours and nothing to do, as I think some of you have now. Um, moving right along, here's another thought for you. Uh, you guys won't know about Peanuts. You're too young. Stacey, he knows. He, yeah, yeah, got a different generation. I, I failed with that group, but this group, they've uh, not let me down. Good on you, Steve. You know about Peanuts? Uh, and look, I was just looking for something on the idea of impending doom, and I came across this, and I was curious... And I looked a little more and I found out there were quite a few cartoons in this series that involved the idea of impending doom. Here it's Linus who never had a very positive attitude about life, always thinking that things were going to be bad. Um, but it cropped up quite a few times and it turned out that uh, the author, Charles Schultz, uh, he himself suffered from this uh, feeling of impending doom. And in fact, in his case, he said it never really left him. It's like his whole life he just had the feeling that something really bad was going to happen to him. Now, that's very unusual. It's a little more common uh, for people who ha are having an anaphylactic attack or perhaps a heart attack might get this feeling of impending doom. They may not really understand exactly what's going on, uh, but they just sense that something really bad is going to happen. I hope that hasn't happened to you. Uh, but these two ideas, the idea of being found out as a fraud and uh, having this sense of impending doom, they're actually related to our... Uh, our reading today and uh, we'll get back to them and maybe you'll be able to work out what they have to do with the reading. Now before we get there, do need to give you a little bit of context because we are in Isaiah chapter 6. We've pretty much skipped through uh, the first five chapters. Last week Luke did a sermonette. I've never heard the term sermonette before. I like it. Um, you're not getting a sermonette tonight, people, sorry. You're getting a sermon and Luke has told me that I can go for as long as I want with you guys. I was told maybe not this morning, but anyway, so great. Um, we'll see how long I can go for. Um, but uh, he was talking about walking together in the light of the Lord. 
Uh, the first five chapters set up, uh, explain the problem before the calling of Isaiah is part of God's solution. And uh, uh, in the book we see what the problem is first, and I've tried to just very quickly summarise that. You'll see, here's a photograph of modern-day Jerusalem. That's not ancient Jerusalem. You probably recognise from the uh, tall buildings in the background. Uh, and you may recognise in the foreground that is the temple, or what's left of the temple. That was Herod's temple. Uh, that was uh, destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And subsequently, there's a blue building with a golden dome. That is the Al-Aqsa Mosque that was built there, I think, by the Ottoman Turks. Um, and uh, that's the third holiest site in Islam, built right on top of the holiest site in Judaism. And if you ever wondered why the Israel-Palestine conflict was complicated, it's there in that photo. Uh, very, uh, both uh, groups of people think that is the holiest or some of the holiest ground in the, on the planet. Um, anyway, uh, at that time, uh, going back to the time that Isaiah was called, um, uh, Jerusalem had been considered by God to be the faithful city. It was called the faithful city under King David. Uh, Jerusalem was the place where uh, the worship of Yahweh was. That, that was. that was central to the worship of Yahweh on planet Earth. Uh, other countries worshipped other gods. This is where Yahweh, who we recognise as the one true God, was being worshipped. It was the faithful city, but it had become the unfaithful city. And uh, uh, the writers of the Bible are often quite brutal and frank in their descriptions of God's people when they're unfaithful. And in this case, the Jerusalemites are described as being a whore, which is not a particularly polite way of describing them. And he's not referring to their sexual conduct he is, in fact, talking about the, faith, the fact that they've been unfaithful to him. So in the same way that, uh, that adultery might be unfaithfulness within marriage, uh, in this case, the idea is that uh, the Jerusalemites are worshipping other gods and they've broken the covenant with God. But strong language to describe the way God feels about the fact that his people are worshipping other gods. Um, and you'll see just a little bit later on, you'll see uh, that uh, God has a plan and his plan is to make Jerusalem the faithful city again. So it had been the faithful city. It was now the unfaithful city and judgment was coming for that. We'll hear more about that. Uh, but then after that, God had a plan to make Jerusalem the faithful city again. And the calling of Isaiah was part of that plan. So let's get into the text. Uh, and we start with when did it happen? And uh, the answer is 742 BC probably. Uh, that is when King Uzziah died, not to be confused with Isaiah the prophet, King Uzziah uh, 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 died in 742 and perhaps that's all this is, is to just say this is when it happened but more than likely it's drawing our attention to the fact that uh, Israel has had 52 years of relative peace and prosperity under the rule of King Uzziah and now they have a new king and they are beginning to wonder well, what's life going to be like under our new king? Who is he? What's he going to be like? What's life going to be like for us? Uh, and it's at that time that Isaiah has a vision of Israel's true king. Uh, and we see him on the throne here. And that's probably why the year is referenced. And Isaiah has a pretty simple vision in a sense. He sees the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And his robe filled the temple. So you get this idea, uh, Isaiah is seeing God's heavenly throne. God is sitting on his throne and the seraphim are there. Uh, you see his heavenly throne, but you also see the temple. The temple is where God dwelt on earth. The, uh, in the, the uh, centralmost part of the temple is called the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies and God's 
physical presence resided there so that no one would go in there. Uh, the only person that could ever go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest and he could only go in on the Day of Atonement and if anyone, anyone else went in or anyone went on any other day, they would die because they'd come into the presence of God and they took this very seriously. They actually would tie a rope around the high priest's leg because he might die of old age in there because he was not a young man and uh, well, no one could go in to get him. So you'd actually have to pull him out with the rope. So they took this idea very seriously that God actually was really there and sometimes in the Old Testament, God had to say, yes, I am there, but I'm actually bigger than that. Like You can't actually contain me in there. I actually made the universe and I hold it in the palm of my hand and I am big. And this, um, this vision is like that as well, that you have this vision of God's heavenly throne and God's wearing a robe and the text doesn't say what the robe is made of, but it's probably made of light. Uh, the psalmist says... He wraps himself in light uh, as with a garment. Uh, and God is wearing a robe that's probably made of light. And that robe, the bottom of that robe, fills the temple. Now, that's not the Holy of Holies. If we go back to the... It's that whole thing there. That's the temple in the foreground there. His robe is filling that space. So he's very big. He's not a small God. Um, so then we get on to the seraphim, and they're pretty interesting. Um, the word means literally burning ones, and so in all likelihood that's describing their appearance, that they had a fiery appearance. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We don't really know. Uh, they are widely considered to be angels, but we can't be certain of that. But there's these fiery creatures appearing in the vision. Um, and, uh, and one of them calls out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The thing that they want, wanted Isaiah and want us to pay attention to here is that God is holy. It's repeated three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So God is described as holy and holiness in Australia gets a bit of a bad rap. It's actually generally not considered to be a good thing. It's often associated with not being able to have a good time. You're a holy person, you're boring, you're old, you don't know how to enjoy yourself. That's a modern secular idea of what holiness is, but that's not at all what holiness is. Uh, our world is full of bad things. You don't have to look hard to see all the bad things in life, and those bad things are caused by unholy people. Uh, unholiness is bad. Holiness is good. You want to be with holy people, not unholy people. Uh, holiness refers to God's moral perfection. He is completely good. He is completely trustworthy and he loves unconditionally. They're some of the things that are encompassed by that idea that God is holy. And he's also identified as the Lord of hosts, which is not commonly done in the Old Testament, but Probably it's important that at this time uh, there was a new superpower on planet Earth. Egypt had been the superpower for some time and now they were over to the west of Israel and now over in the east was this new superpower called Assyria and they were rising in power and people were noticing their growing power and all the countries in the area were going, well, I wonder what we're going to do here. 
Uh, much like today, uh, the United States of America has been the superpower on planet Earth for a long time, and there's now a rising superpower, China. And uh, there are lots of countries that wonder, well, what does China pose a threat to us? What are we going to do about it? Do we need to have a treaty with the United States to make us safe? That same kind of political consideration that we see in the world today was going on in the world at that time. As Assyria rose in power, how do we make sure we're going to be okay? Do we need to make a treaty with Egypt? Uh, we're worried about the might of the Assyrian army and maybe we need to get the might of the Egyptian army on our side and they might look after us. And God is described here as the Lord of hosts and it's referring to the heavenly host. God has his own army and God's army is a lot more powerful than the Assyrian army or the Egyptian army. And Isaiah condemned the Israelite leaders for putting their trust in Egypt and not putting their trust in Yahweh, who was the Lord of hosts. It's also unclear which part of the temple is being referred to when it says the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound. But it is clear that it was a fearful noise. You know, when sound makes a building shake, that's quite a noise that does that. And that is the voice of the seraphim. As he calls out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The temple is shaking. So this is not a quiet, gentle little thing with harps and lullabies. And this is a booming voice from a fearful creature that is giving praise to God. And the temple was filled with smoke. And again, the text doesn't say where the smoke came from. But in uh, several other parts of the Old and New Testament, we often hear about God's glory. And around that brilliant glory is either cloud or smoke. So it's probably the same idea. But uh, Isaiah was seeing God's glory and trying to describe to us what it looked like. And one of the things he saw was this smoke. And then we get to his reaction. So God, uh, Isaiah has come into the presence of God. He's done so in a vision. Uh, but dreams feel real at the time. I don't know whether you've ever woken from a bad dream with your heart pounding. And afterwards you go, oh, phew, it's just a dream. But at the time, it was really scary. And that's what's going on. Isaiah is having a vision. You can say, oh, it's just a vision. But whilst he's having the vision, it seems real to him. He is standing in the presence of God. And you might think that that would be a cool experience. You might be thinking that you would get out your phone and you would say to God, God, could you just, just stay there and smile? And could you just get those, the, could you guys just come a little closer and I'll, I've got to get a selfie, you know, because this is so cool. I just need all my friends to see that I was in heaven here with you. Now, you might be thinking that that would be what might happen, but... It's completely different to that. His experience was totally the opposite of thinking this is a cool selfie moment. He is terrified. Because he has come into the presence of God and God is actually good. And he was probably okay beforehand when he was just hanging around with his friends and his family. He was probably thinking, I'm a good person. Because we do that when we compare ourselves to the people around us. Perhaps you can do that here and just go, oh, I'm, I'm as good as the person on my left and I'm as good as the person on my right and I'm better than the person behind me. 
all that kind of stuff, and you feel like you're a pretty good person. And then you come into the presence of someone who is really good. And God is really good, and it's different. And Isaiah, God doesn't say anything. Isaiah just comes into the presence of someone who is really good, and he just knows that he is not. He just feels unclean. He says, woe is me, for I am unclean. It's a bit like when you buy a white shirt. And it comes out of the packet, it's very bright white, and it gets washed and it gets washed and it gets washed, and slowly it gets duller and darker and greyer, and you might not notice until you put it up against a new white shirt, and then you go, oh my goodness, my white shirt is filthy. That's what Isaiah was experiencing. For the first time in his life, he'd actually come into the presence of someone who was really good. And he just went, oh my goodness, I am unclean. He'd been exposed as a fraud, like Anna Delby was. He'd been passing himself off as a good person, who God would accept. And now he was in God's presence and he knew that the game was up. And he knew that he was not good. And he just suddenly got this feeling of impending doom. Woe is me, for I am lost. Recognising that he was unclean before God, he thought something really bad was about to happen to him. And probably he expected to die, because that's what unholy people do in the presence of God. That's why only the high priest goes in and only on the Day of Atonement, because if an unholy person comes into the presence of God, you die. And Isaiah's having that feeling, he's expecting something terrible to happen to him because he now realises that he is not a good person. He is anything but good and that his people are anything but good. And he has this curious uh, awareness of uh, the uncleanness of his lips. I'm pretty sure his heart was unclean and I'm pretty sure his actions were unclean, not just his words, but he's particularly conscious of the uncleanness of his words. And perhaps that's because he's about to be called as a prophet. He's about to have a job as God's spokesperson and God's spokesperson really ought to speak in a certain way. If you're going to represent God in the way that you speak, you ought to speak in a certain way and he probably realised that he didn't and God was probably preparing him for that. So at the confession of his sin, when he realises he's a sinner and he deserves God's judgement, God immediately takes action. And one of the seraphim flew over with a glowing coal and touched his lips with that coal and said, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. What had Isaiah contributed to that? Nothing. His sin is atoned for. It is entirely the grace of God and it is a work of heaven He had nothing to do with it. And that is the same for you and me and our salvation. We contribute nothing. Uh, It is entirely the work of God. Whoops. That is... There we go. Then God speaks to the heavenly court. And you might think that he's going to say, Isaiah, now that I've forgiven you, I've got a job for you. And I need you to go and do this and that. A bit like he did... 
to Moses and Joshua, who were fairly reluctant. Uh, he had told them they had to go, and they said, send someone else. Um, he just calls out to the heavenly court, who shall I send who will go for us? He's basically saying, I need a volunteer. Now, I used to teach at Covenant Christian School. I still teach, but not there. So I like teaching my Year 7 class. They were still young enough to have fun. By the time they were in Year 8, they were too cool for everything. Um, but Year 7 would have fun, and I used to often ask them, I'd say, I need a volunteer. And I would never tell them what the job was. And they, half the class would put their hand up and volunteer for whatever it was. And most of the time, it was the boring, the usual sort of job that teachers would ask students to do, maybe go to the office and collect something, whatever. But every now and then, just to make it more interesting, I would make them do something hard so that they were always a bit nervous when they put their hand up and volunteered. And one year, uh, one time, I told them they had to go and run around the playground and yell out at the top of their voice, I love science, because I'm a science teacher. I had to go around going, I love science, I love science, at the top of their voice. So down they went and running around the playground going, I love science, I love science, right when the deputy principal came out of the staff room and she yelled at them. And I hid so that she didn't know that I'd sent them. Uh, but that was part of the fun of <laughs> volunteering when you don't know what you're being volunteered for. And that is what Isaiah did. God says, who should I send? Who will go for us? No mention yet of what he's going to have to do. He puts up his hand. I'm sure he put up his hand, even though the text doesn't say so. He says, here I am, send me. It seems that having had this sense that he is unworthy and having had this sense that he deserves God's judgment and then having received mercy from God, he's willing to do whatever God wants him to do. He doesn't need to know what it is. Whatever you want, God, I'll do it. And then God tells him what the job is and it doesn't sound so good. He might have been thinking that God was going to send him out, call the people to repent and they were going to repent en masse and they were going to go, thank you, Isaiah, thanks for calling us to repent. You are the best, we love you. But that is not how it played out. He said, go say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now the language here is quite difficult. It does sound a little bit like you've got a group of people who may well have it in their hearts to repent and then God is determined that that's not going to happen. That's what the language sounds a little bit like, but God is not like that at all. There are many, many places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where God makes it very clear that he desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that he would turn from his wickedness and live. And he says that he would like all men to be saved and he waits patiently so that we can all be saved. So God is not a God who decides that he wants some people not to receive salvation. And the Israelites were not of a mind to repent either. The Israelites had hardened their hearts a long time ago and they had God had sent people to them before and they had rejected the people that he'd sent. Uh, in fact, at one point God says, I am weary of relenting. God had sent people to the Jews, to the Jerusalemites, 
and called them to repentance and they wouldn't repent and he'd send them again and call them to repentance and they wouldn't repent. And there was always consequences that were threatened. Those of you who are parents will understand this. There are no consequences. Your children will be spoiled. But then when they do that thing that you told them not to do and it's time for the consequences, you don't want to do it because you love them and you don't like to see them in pain. And so maybe you relent. And as a parent, you have this battle between, well, if I keep relenting, they're going to end up being spoiled, but I don't want to do this thing because it's hard. And God found himself there with his people. I'm weary of relenting and I can't keep doing it forever. And the people were taking him for granted. And they said, our God is a merciful God and he will relent. And so we don't need to repent. And so that's really, this is not, this is what God wants to happen. This is God telling Isaiah, this is what is going to happen. It's not going to play out like you might have hoped, where they're all going to repent and you'll be a hero. Actually, most of them are not going to repent and you are not going to be the hero. And it seems like Isaiah gets the idea. We're on uh, actually verses 11 to 13, not 9 to 10 here. Um, and he says, until when, Lord? I've got, to, I've got to keep calling these people to repentance and they're not going to listen. How long do I have to do that for? And the answer is pretty hard. Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. You're going to have to keep calling people to repentance until that happens. It's pretty hard. Hard for Isaiah and even harder for the people. But there is a glimmer of hope. Uh, and the next sentence says, a tenth will remain. They're not all going to be judged. A, a tenth, a remnant will, will remain. And the very last sentence there gives you an illustration. It says, like the terebinth or the oak tree that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. It's an interesting illustration that God is providing of his people. He, you can think of the nation of Israel, and in particular the city of Jerusalem, as being like a fruit tree. And fruit trees bear fruit, and they're meant to bear good fruit that we like to eat. But sometimes a fruit tree will bear bad fruit. And we might do various things to try and make it produce better fruit. You might try and fix up the soil, or you might try and spray it with things to get rid of the disease or whatever it is. But sometimes the disease is endemic in the tree, and you just can't get rid of the disease, and so you have to cut the tree down. And that's what he's saying his people is like. They are so spiritually sick that there's nothing for it but to cut the tree down. And that's pretty harsh. And it was. If you, if you know your history, you'll know that the destruction of Jerusalem under the Babylonians was an awful thing. And most people in that city died. And those that didn't, almost all of them were taken away to captivity. But then, beyond that, you've got this stump and when I was a kid living in Pimble, we had a gum tree. And it was about, I don't know, probably about 10 metres tall. And it was there for my whole life. And then one day, my parents decided to cut it down. And it was chopped down and it was only, there was about this much sticking up above the ground. The tree was gone. But you know what happened, don't you? That it wasn't long later before some shoots started to grow back out. And I, I 
I didn't realise. I thought, I thought when the tree was cut down, that was the end of it. But these shoots came back. And then eventually the tree grew back just as big as it ever was. And I wondered why they cut it down. Um, but that's the illustration here, is that God is going to have to do something pretty extreme with his people. And he's going to, it's like cutting down a tree. But it is going to regrow. He's going to start again. And there's not a lot of details here. I don't know if in the next few weeks we maybe are going to provide some details about this. But uh, God is going to start again with his people and he's going to make Jerusalem the faithful city again. And that's his plan is I need to judge the faithless city. But after that, I'm going to make the faithful city again. All right, well, that's the text. Let's have a think about how that applies to us. The Bible teaches that like Isaiah, we will all stand before God one day except it won't be a vision, it will be face to face. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. What do you think it will be like when you stand in the presence of God to give an account of your life? I wonder if you think that will be a enjoyable time or a terrifying time. I was at the uh, Lovell's commissioning service a few weeks ago and there was a great message given and I can't remember the name of the guy who gave it but one of the things that he talked about was particularly interesting to me and he talked about the fact that we have irrational fears of things. We, some of us have irrational fears of cockroaches. Some of us have irrational fears of spiders. Some of us have irrational fears of heights. Others of us have irrational fears of small spaces. But many people have an irrational lack of fear. A lot of people have an irrational lack of fear of God. There are people who are scared of a cockroach and not of God. They're scared of a spider and they're not scared of God. That's irrational. And we have this irrational lack of fear. Many of us have this irrational lack of fear of God. If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to be afraid of anyone or anything, it ought to be God. And many of us are not. We simply refuse to accept God's judgments. And you can do that now, but not on the final day. The Bible outlines the commandments that God has given to his people. There are many of them. Jesus summarised them into two to make it nice and simple. If you don't want to be afraid on Judgment Day, one way you can do that, you only need to obey these two commands. Jesus said, just obey that and you'll be fine. Well, what are they? This is the most important Jesus answered when questioned about that. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first thing you've got to do. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. When I think about that, I think, yes, that makes sense. God made the universe. He made the world I live in. He made me. He made you. Every good gift that comes into my life has come from him. Yes, I should love him with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole soul and my whole strength. But I don't. And the second commandment also makes sense to me. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well, you're worth as much as I am. Your life matters as much as mine does. 
so I ought to love you as much as I love myself. That makes sense. The problem is that I don't. So I know that there's not a moment of any day when I reach that target. I know that I am not good. And because we have this irrational uh, lack of fear of God, the Bible has to spell out for us the situation. And in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, he makes it very clear to us. In case we have this illusion that we're good and God is going to accept us for who we are, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a hard message to hear. It's a message that you can get in a lot of trouble telling people in Australia about that today. They don't want to know about it. Jesus often warned about the judgment of God. And he describes the place reserved for those condemned as the eternal fire. It's a hard message to hear. But God is kind enough to tell us while we can still do something about it. God does not want you to get there on the final day and get a surprise. Oops, I'm not good enough. He wants you to know. He's telling you if you're willing to listen. He's telling you now you're not good enough. You might feel when you're in the presence of other people who aren't good, you might feel like you're pretty good. But the Bible says that God actually really is good. And when you stand in his presence, you're going to know that you're not good. And we can do something about that now. And Paul goes on in the very next verse to talk about the good news. The bad news is that we stand in the path of God's righteous anger against sin. The good news is that there is a way of escape. And it's the cross of Christ. And the very next verse says, They, that's the people who uh, fall short, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news is that God has made a way of escape. His righteous anger at human rebellion was poured out on God the Son at his crucifixion. The holy and blameless Son of God stands in our place and bears the penalty for sin so that we may be justified before God. God finds no fault with those who put their trust in Jesus because the penalty for sin has been paid. It's just as if I'd never sinned. The idea is put beautifully in the most famous of hymns, Amazing Grace. It's a line that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." It's not natural for humans to fear God, but the first thing that God does when he's converting a person is he gives us a fear of God. We recognise who he is. We recognise that he is our judge. We recognise that he is holy and we are not and we have that holy fear. And then that same grace re relieves our fears because we know that Jesus lived a perfect life and that he offered his life as a ransom for our sins. And so you don't have to fear the judgment of God. You deserve it, but you don't have to fear it. That dreadful fear of judgment may be replaced by love for our Saviour, joy and peace in our hearts, in the sure knowledge that we've been reconciled to God. Have you understood your unworthiness before God? Have you ever really felt it as Isaiah did? Are you ready to put your trust in Jesus and receive God's forgiveness? 
Now, when we think about where the passage is going, on the surface, the text might seem to be about the willingness of Isaiah to go, and the application could be to ask you if you're willing to go and where you're willing to go to and what you're willing to do. But the text isn't really about Isaiah and what he's doing. The text is about what God and what he's doing. God had a plan to save the whole world from their sins. And he would send his own son to be born as one of us. But how could we know what his plan was and who his anointed one was? God has a plan. How can we know what it is? Well, he would need to tell us beforehand. And for that, he's going to need a spokesman, a prophet. Amos 3.7 says, Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. And I wouldn't take the word nothing too seriously. I think that God might scratch his nose without telling the prophets. But the idea is that if God is going to do something that affects his plan of salvation and affects how us knowing whether we'll be okay on the last day, he's going to tell the prophets first so that we can know that it was his plan and what his plan was and who his chosen one is. Each Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a bit scary that we're in December and Christmas is three weeks away and Carol's Under the Star is on Thursday night. Yikes. It's coming up. Christians believe that he is God's divine son and appointed saviour king. Can we be sure that these claims are true? Can we be sure that they... You want to be sure, don't you? You'd like to be sure that that's true. Well, we can be. Can be sure because God has revealed his plan to the prophets who declared it to the world. So much of the life death and resurrection of Jesus was foretold by the prophets that you can be sure that he is the way for you to be reconciled to God and to inherit eternal life. Well, you probably know that we like to talk about your next steps here and I want to ask you about what your next step might be. And that's going to depend on where you are in the journey of faith. So I've got a few questions for you to have a think about. Have you understood who Jesus is? Can you see that the prophets were pointing to him as God's appointed saviour? Have you recognised your unworthiness before God and accepted his offer of salvation? If not, is that your next step? And is today the day for it? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Every day is the day of salvation. Every day is an opportunity to lose your fear of impending doom and have assurance of salvation. Is that your next step? Have you understood what Christmas is really about? Do you see that it's a time to reflect on the most momentous event in human history? The incarnation of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The baby born in a manger in Bethlehem is the saviour of the world. Is your next step 
making Christmas more than a holiday and a family catch-up. And for those who've already taken those steps, how might you encourage others to celebrate Christmas in this way too? Happy Christmas, St Mark's.